0: Welcome to Speaking Out.
1: We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining exploration. I just and want energy. To talk a little bit about indigenous uh, constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Barrent, it's a fresh view coming on. on ABC Radio. We're calling for the establishment of independent, empowered statutory officers to focus on the issues affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, and to hold those systems accountable. So we'd like to see a national commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children to keep a clear focus, as well as empowered commissioners in each jurisdiction. It's a very simple framework, but it's really about reimagining the system rather than kind of piecemeal or iterative change to a system that we know is not currently working for us.
2: More than sorry. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Behrendt. On February 13, 2008, then-Prime Minister Kevin Rudd said the words, we are sorry, to members of the Stolen Generations and their descendants. The National Apology represented a formal acknowledgement that the forced removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children caused intergenerational harm to our communities. Despite this landmark moment, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children are being removed from their families, community and culture at higher rates today than at any other moment in Australian history. The statistics show that First Nations kids are over 11 times more likely to be removed from their families than non-Indigenous children, representing 41% of those in out-of-home care. These issues were central to a recent online forum hosted by the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion and the UTS Law Faculty. Held last month to mark Reconciliation Week and titled More Than Sorry, the conversation aimed to highlight alternatives to the out-of-home care system and the reforms needed to ensure mistakes of the past are not repeated. Tonight, you'll hear from Associate Professor Paul Gray, who leads the Indigenous Child Protection Hub at the University of Technology Sydney's Jumbana Institute, and James Bowfills, a research fellow and PhD candidate at the Jumbana Institute and the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology Sydney. Let's listen in now as Dr. Paul Gray reflects on the significance of the Bringing Them Home report more than 24 years ago.
1: Bring them home, for me, was a critical opportunity for truth-telling in our nation. And a huge part of the importance of bringing them home was the testimony provided from hundreds of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people affected by policies of forced separation. And so I want to take this opportunity to acknowledge and honour members of the Stolen Generations, those forcibly removed from their families and the families that were left behind. Uh, Their resistance, their resilience and their ongoing advocacy continues to be a source of inspiration. Stolen generation survivors and descendants have long been incredibly staunch advocates in this space, speaking their own truth but also calling for change to contemporary systems for those that come after them. So in addition to mapping this important history through eras of protection and assimilation and integration, Bringing them home made a powerful argument for reparations, for acknowledgement of the harms, for redress, and importantly, for guarding against repetition. And as someone who is focused on contemporary child protection systems and the ongoing disproportionate impact on our families and communities, this is an area that I tend to focus on. But I want to make it clear that this is only a part of the story of bringing them home. So with respect to contemporary child protection systems, Bring them home made a number of important recommendations for structural reform. So it acknowledged that the impact of forced removals for First Nations kids and their families and called for a greater focus on healing and trying to address those harms. This included a recommendation for a comprehensive social justice package, which was about addressing those harms and focusing on the drivers of contact with child protection systems today. It also called for a national approach to enable self-determination so that we could transfer the jurisdiction of child welfare but also other associated systems to First Nations communities themselves so that decision-making is being made by communities shaping the futures for their kids. It also called for national standards, including how the principle of best interests for First Nations children should be understood and the importance of ongoing connection to family, to community and to culture, that's needed for identity, for belonging and for lifelong well-being. Now, sadly, because so many of those recommendations have not been implemented, it's a report that's still, you know, almost a quarter of a century later has currency today. The recent Family as Culture report really emphasised this. It called for greater family support, so reorientation of the system towards prevention and restoration, and particularly identified two key structural areas that needed to be changed if we're to address the overrepresentation, self-determination, greater recognition of self-determination and much stronger public accountability and oversight. So this is part of the unfinished business of bringing them home and the change that we still need to see today.
2: Thanks, Paul. James, I'll bring you in now, obviously, the other critical moment was the National Apology to the Stolen Generations back in 2008. I was wondering, now that you're working in the area and you've got a really good understanding of the history of this space, what, from your perspective, has been the lasting impact and the importance of the National Apology?
3: In terms of the 08 Apology, I think looking back and looking at a lot of the build-up to that Apology, now taking 10 years sort of from the them home report, and then moving into sort of national, a national apology following state apologies from 97 to 99, and then the motion of reconciliation in 99. There was a lot of lag until 2008. Until 2000, we had 250,000 people walking over the Sydney Harbour Bridge looking for that national apology. We had another eight years. A lot of focus is around the apology by Rudd, which most will know and most will watch. But what stood out for me and still does stand out for me is Uncle Tom's response to the apology that happened on the same day, which in the position he had representing two peak stolen generation bodies, national bodies, and to be able to stand and speak for them and talk about what it means, that was something that stands out to me and coming anniversary and listening to it again. Uncle Tom spoke about the main thing that I took from it was listening and understanding lends itself to reconciliation. So I think we now are to be taking action with this anniversary in terms of the action. I still think we have to listen and understand in collaboration with any action that is taken in terms of both for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. So that is something that stands out for me. I was finishing school and, you know, being one of the only Aboriginal families at the school and not really doing anything for the acknowledgement at school, but listening to it. Now looking back, it's, you know, a lot has changed and a lot's moving in a different direction, but there's still a fair bit and, I'm liking talking about this topic in relation to it today. But the last hit impact for me is more so what Uncle Tom said in terms of listening and making sure we are listening and, and not going to action without knowing or listening first.
2: Thanks, James it's great to be reminded that actually listening is an action and thank you so right listening to you speak I'm reminded of when you look back on the footage of the day and even if you understand the statistics that we talked about at the beginning of our discussion you look at the faces of the old people and how much emotion there was in there and it always makes me a bit teary to see how important it was so thank you for those uh, reflections you both work closely with Aboriginal communities and their organizations Paul I'll start with you can you Tell us a bit about what the experiences and outcomes are like for children who are removed to out-of-home care, acknowledging, of course, that each child will have a very different experience, but obviously through your work, you would have seen some commonalities that have clearly emerged.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that's a really big question. And as you say, Larissa, every child's experience and pathway is different. And so while I'll be touching on some of those key themes and statistics that emerge, I don't intend for that to be interpreted as this is the experiences of all kids. But I think what we do also have is that there have been numerous recent reviews that in different ways have tried to tell those stories. And I think trying to engage with those and and reading those case studies and hearing from young people and families directly, as Jane said, listening to the people affected is a really important action that we can take. So there are things like the Families Culture Review that I mentioned earlier that has great case studies. There was the Task Force 1000 process down in Victoria that did a similar process. There's been papers by peak bodies like Absec talking to families and communities affected. And so I encourage people to go and and have a look at those resources. But broadly, we know that for children and young people who enter out-of-home care, there are generally insufficient supports available and particularly insufficient supports Available to families in the first place to prevent the need for removal at the outset. And particularly for Aboriginal families, these supports are not well aligned to their needs and the needs of our communities. So the outcome of this is that children, particularly Aboriginal children, are sadly unlikely to be restored when they're removed or to have supports provided towards restoration. So families' culture really had a big look at this and found that in the vast majority of cases where a care plan had been filed, it did not identify restoration as a realistic possibility. And in a third of the cases involved in the qualitative review, there was no casework support provided to achieve restoration. Families culture also noted that in some cases, possible family placements were overlooked. And the international research tells us that kin placements tend to be more stable, that children placed with family are more likely to remain in contact with their siblings or be placed with their siblings and tend to have better behavioural and mental health outcomes. Now, it is clear from the numbers that most children tend to be placed with family, and that's good, but that doesn't mean that we should ignore the experiences of families who are marginalised and excluded from that process and denied the opportunity to step in and provide alternate care when parents aren't able to do so. So the research in out-of-home care suggests that developmental wellbeing, education and justice outcomes are poor relative to those not in out-of-home care. And the outcomes for Aboriginal children tend to be particularly poor. And I think it's important, you know, as we said, this is not all kids, but as a society and as a community, we are the ones who have authorised this significant intervention in the lives of kids. It happens in our name. And so we need to be honest and be aware about the experiences of children and the outcomes that we're achieving for them And the simple fact is that we are not delivering the sorts of outcomes that I think as a community we should expect. Too many don't receive the supports that they need for healing, to manage the trauma and the grief of being removed, and the supports that they need to develop a strong identity, a strong sense of self, and a sense of belonging and connection to their family, to their community, to their culture and country, which we know is so central to the lifelong well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children. And those supports are critical, not just for the kids. I'm not talking about delivering supports directly to children and young people, but it's also about making sure there are supports that are available to their parents and families, to their carers, to everyone who sits around them and is trying their hardest to give them the sorts of future that we all want them to have. We know things like exclusions from school, for example, disproportionately affect children and young people in out-of-home care. We know that far too many kids... "Quote unquote, age out of the system into housing instability or homelessness. We know that far too many have disproportionate contact with the criminal justice system. And so it's important that we are aware of those things and that we're doing something to address it. And I think the best way to improve them is to intervene early, to address the drivers of harm, which bringing them home talked about, And to provide supports to children and their families so that they can remain safely at home rather than entering care in the first place. And then if they do need to enter care, that we provide them with the supports that are needed.
2: Thank you, Paul. James, I wonder, just following on from some of the observations Paul's made, what your thoughts and reflections are?
3: Yeah, in terms of outcomes, it was a question that was posed to me at the start of my PhD. It was actually Paul that brought it up, the idea of outcomes and what they were. And in terms of the language around outcomes, what I've seen within child protection, there is a lot more now longer term orders that are happening in terms of outcomes I've found and what people have spoken to me when they believe or when they hear outcomes, it's always long term okay so what's happening with this young person when they go into care the outcome that we're looking for is when they're exiting care but as a child development academic looking at what happens along that path along that journey from you know as we've said it could be 18 years from birth what happens along that and the outcomes that are set or have been set in the past at more of a short-term basis through developmental stages are seen, as Paul noted, Aboriginal people having poorer outcomes. But a lot of these outcomes are imposed outcomes. They aren't outcomes that are generated or that are looked for by or for uh, Aboriginal communities, these kids maybe going up against other challenges that aren't recorded. And so there's, you know, within these statistics, there's inherent biases to show poorer outcomes. And I think understanding and developing outcomes together and knowing what, from the very get-go, as Paul sort of noted in terms of looking at the plans, that some young people don't have them or haven't had them but really sort of identifying things earlier and having those mapped out as a roadmap for however long they need to be in there. And then comes the understanding of what outcomes are for parents or what outcomes are for community or family that do have their young one removed. You know, Restoration is something that I'm looking at quite closely and that is seen as what an outcome should be, and I think the whole philosophy around out-of-home care and within child protection is, yes, unbelievably horrible things have happened, possibly to these young people by an individual or by individuals, and restoration is not returning them specifically to those people. It's returning them to mob, to community, to allow them to engage with their culture and continue that. If they're not, and with these longer-term orders now put into place in permanency, what we're seeing or what I have been seeing is that restoration is just not happening. There's no working towards it. I, you know, Wanting to hear more from young people but also wanting to hear more from parents who don't have a caseworker or don't have someone assisting them on their way. And now with these longer-term orders after two years, if... A parent or a community member that is a carer of this young person when they are removed has an issue with drug and alcohol or something else that is unlikely to be addressed within the two year period. So, how is this person to address that within the two year period and then move to a long term order? You know, things are not set in the idea that restoration is to happen. We're seeing that as an outcome that it's not happening. Or if it is, it's a very little numbers of those that are entering into care. I think best interest is something that Paul has mentioned before in terms of outcomes. But what is that? What is best interest? Whose best interest? And is that individual along the way for different young people or families or parents or carers or guardians now? Whose best interest is at heart? And I think that ambiguity around best interests, about kin and kinship, needs to have further work and further sort of understanding made and information developed around those terms.
2: Thanks, James. Very thoughtful reflections there too. Paul, I just want to dig into one particular issue that I mentioned earlier, and that is that one in five First Nations children who entered care last year were under the age of one. I've spoken holistically about the issues, but can you tell us a bit more about this particular issue and what the alternatives are?
1: Sure, Larissa, and that statistic really demonstrates what an important and considerable concern this is for us, that 20% of Aboriginal kids entering care are under the age of one. That's a considerable proportion of the number of our kids entering out of home care. That's a rate of about 46 per 1,000 or about 10 times the rate of non-Indigenous kids entering out of home care and so there's a growing initiative led by first nations practitioners and researchers and supported by non-indigenous allies to raise awareness of this issue and to call for change and that the change that we're calling for is particularly to focus on providing supports to families early and preventing the need for removal wherever possible no one is suggesting and it should go without saying but i'll say it anyway no one is suggesting leaving any child in an unsafe situation. But the key issue that I think we're focused on is given what we know about the trajectories of children in out-of-home care, how do we best respond when issues of risk are identified to support children and to give them the best start to life? We know that as any family, when they prepare to welcome a new baby into their family, that's a great opportunity for change. People are already thinking about the ways that this will change and the things that they will need to change. And so it is a really key opportunity to go in and support families. And in a way, that's the whole point of the pre-birth alert systems that many jurisdictions have so that we can identify those families that need support and direct support to them during that period of pregnancy. So that at the time that the baby comes, there's a plan in place, there are supports in place, there's a broader family network that's been engaged around making sure that that child is safe. But too often, that's not the way that things work in practice. So for a range of reasons, and again, families' culture address this issue in some detail, we don't tend to see those supports offered in the weeks and months during pregnancy and those plans put in place. Instead, it works a bit more like a surveillance system that identifies which families need assistance and then intervenes by removing the child soon after birth. And so part of what we're calling for is more specialised, accessible and culturally safe supports that can engage with families during pregnancy, at the time of birth and in the weeks and months following, so that families can get the support that they need. And we feel that this is a much more effective way of giving kids the best start to life and promoting their safety and long-term wellbeing. Now, there are great examples of this happening in partnership with Aboriginal communities across the country. And we want to see more effort put into evaluating those and building them, you know, sharing that process across the country so that all families have access to the supports that they need.
2: Thanks, Paul. James, an issue that I wanted to dig into with you, as I mentioned earlier on, you've got experience working in out-of-home care sector, but also the criminal justice system. So I was wondering what your observations were, what you could share with us about what you've seen in your work and research about the intersection between First Nations children in out-of-home care and the criminal justice system.
3: Thank you for that. In terms of what initially got me into child protection and looking further into the area coming from corrective services and juvenile justice was the idea which I was going to further look at, but Kath McFarland posted some work in 2018 around what has been termed now the crossover kids, young people that have been moving from child protection into adult or juvenile justice and subsequent incarceration, so that is not an idea that that's happening in terms of young people in child protection. they entry entering these systems at much higher rates. There's literature around over-surveillance of families once they do come in contact with um, the justice system, having those young people and having those families surveillance more so by government departments and then leading into subsequent arrests and incarceration. So there is that connection there. Once there is that engagement with the Justice Department, it's quite hard to stop further removals or incarceration because they're seen as, or what can be seen as a norm. You know, families are getting incarcerated or have at higher rates, and why aren't they? So that is something that is definitely a concern in an area, whether that be, you know, police being used as... Behavioural management tools during out-of-home care, that's something that I'm looking at at the moment. What is the idea when a kid is in care to engage the police force, to engage police coming out? If you at your house had an unruly child who was your child, would you call the police as a deterrent? Probably unlikely. Are these police being called at higher numbers for out-of-home care situations as a deterrent? what's happening in that area. So there is that connection and there is that engagement, unfortunately, leading to higher numbers in, in the criminal justice system.
2: You've just heard from James Bofill's research fellow and PhD candidate at the Jumbana Institute and the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney.
1: Speaking out with Larissa Barron. The knowledge, the culture, the arts, the language, the law and customs of Indigenous people. On ABC Radio.
2: This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. Tonight on Speaking Out, we're bringing you a focused discussion on Indigenous out-of-home care, as statistics continue to show First Nations kids being removed from their families at increasingly alarming rates. We'll bring you more from the conversation after some music from Central Queensland singer-songwriter Myesha. Here she is with her debut track, Twisting Words. Aisha there with twisting words. Let's return now to the online forum, More Than Sorry, held last month to mark Reconciliation Week. The discussion focused on the disturbing figures around First Nations children caught up in the out-of-home care system, as well as the need for greater support for at-risk families. The Family Matters campaign has developed a roadmap to address the failures of the child protection system. And as Associate Professor Paul Gray explains, central to the strategy is Aboriginal self-determination.
1: Sure, Larissa. And I think, you know, that captures James's earlier point too about how we understand the best interests of our children. And that idea of responding to secure the futures of First Nations children has been a common refrain through The eras of protection and assimilation and the outcomes of that have been devastating for our communities. And so, a big part of what bringing them home was about was returning that decision making to communities. And the Family Matters campaign, which is a national campaign led by the National Peak, Snake, and a leadership group of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Islander advocates, has kind of picked up on that unfinished business of bringing them home. Every year, we release a national report outlining key issues of concern and the progress of various jurisdictions in addressing those enduring systems and practice issues towards eliminating the overrepresentation of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in child protection systems very concerning that last year analysis from the report suggested that if we don't change the way that we are responding to this issue the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children in out of home care is likely to double by the end of the decade. The building blocks outline our roadmap for change. And in a way, they reflect those themes that bringing them home identified more than two decades ago about reorienting the system towards prevention and putting decisions back in the hands of our community. So the first building block is that we want to ensure that all families enjoy access to quality, culturally safe, universal and targeted services, uh, the services that all families need to help them in their child-rearing duties and to support their children to thrive. And this is about reorienting the system from crisis to prevention and acting early to give kids the best start. Related to that, the second building block, it's important that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families and communities and their organisations participate in and have control over the decisions that affect their kids. So this is not just about decisions in individual cases, but also about shaping the systems and services and responses that are available to families so that those services are tailored to our needs and are most effective in addressing the issues that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families are facing. The third building block is for law, policy and practice in child welfare to be culturally safe and responsive making sure it's got the right safeguards in it for our kids, including, for example, enshrining the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child placement principle. And finally, the fourth building block, that governments and services are accountable to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. As I mentioned earlier, Family as Culture identified that accountability remains a key issue. And it's part of why, as part of the Family Matters campaign and alongside Snake, we're calling for the establishment of independent empowered statutory officers to focus on the issues affecting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and to hold those systems accountable. So we'd like to see a national commissioner for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children to keep a clear focus, as well as empowered commissioners in each jurisdiction. So yeah, that's the building blocks. It's a very simple framework, but it's really about reimagining the system rather than kind of piecemeal or iterative change to a system that we know is not currently working for us.
2: James, how can we ensure First Nations voices and approaches are centred in any actions we take to overhaul the current system? And I guess part of that question really asks, what is the role of self-determination in this space?
3: Yeah, I think it does harp back to Uncle Tom and the listening. We really have to listen to communities in terms of what they are wanting and you know these communities are varied Aboriginal people are a very youthful population and our children are our future so understanding not just importantly what our elders are saying but what our community members are saying but also what the young people are saying themselves and that's been a big shift I know in the work that I've seen from Paul around engaging with those young people and having them supply and be allowed to and comfortable to provide a voice to what they're experiencing and what they're seeing and taking in all voices in approaches that are to come and knowing what's happening for these young people and all that are engaged within the child protection. In terms of approaches It's a very interesting time at the moment with the privatisation and a movement to non-government organisations to supply out-of-home care services. So I feel that they're incentive-driven. Possibly these incentives need to be revised. Um, We spoke about restoration, having that as an incentive, if possible, to restore and developing what outcomes and, and what approaches we want, what communities want, and factoring those in, creating and using the Aboriginal non-government organisations that are supplying out-of-home care who are experts in their areas. We've got organisations like GMAR and others subsequently like that that have done incredible work for a very long time and the listening is starting and the listening needs to continue and probably more so in a way. So engaging those people and those bodies and those organisations into and continuing to have them engaged in the discussion. But then also the accountability that Paul noted, I think, is... Probably one of the most important parts, if it's not working and people aren't held accountable or people's voices aren't getting engaged, then what's to happen? I think the movement towards having these commissioners come in and have legitimate oversight and having legitimate uses or controls over what's happening will go a long way to helping our people within the system. And I think in terms of self-determination, it is by us and for us. And I think that needs to continue with all of what Paul said. They're simple things that should be put into place and followed through and people need to be made accountable for what's actually happening and subsequently what's not happening. And if it's not happening, then it needs to be addressed.
2: Thanks for that. And I just wonder for anyone who's taken the time to listen, who might be listening to the webinar after it's posted, what non-Indigenous people can do in terms of taking action. And I notice this is also a question that Mira's asked. For people listening who do feel concern. what's your advice on taking that action? And I guess I'll start with you, James.
3: I think the big one is... Going back to Uncle Tom and listening to his first-hand experiences and family histories with removal, it's going to be unlikely that you'll find an Aboriginal family that will not have some engagement or some history with removal and understanding that. I think knowledge really about what has happened in the past is our biggest sort of need, having that understanding, having that knowledge, having that information that people are are wanting and are searching to understand who they are, where they're from, how are they connected. Information is the one thing that Aboriginal people since past removals have wanted more than anything and I think information is very significant. Who controls that information is quite important and to be able to know that. But really knowledge about the past and, and moving forward actively together, I think, is the main one. We can't do it ourselves Indigenous people can't do it ourselves. Non-Indigenous people can't do it themselves or for Indigenous people. It does have to be done together in collaboration.
2: Thank you. And, Paul, your reflections?
1: Well, there's quite a few actions, actually. So first, shameless plug, jump over to the Family Matters website and support our campaign for change, support our call for a national commissioner, Uh, very simple action that you can do. Follow snake. follow Aboriginal organisations and peak bodies in your area. Stand beside them and demand that as a society that we do better. Educate yourself by listening, as James has said. Listen to our communities, listen to our families, our grandmothers who continue to lead the way in this space. Understand their experiences and the challenges facing the child protection system. These are systems that as a society we built and that we maintain. Um, They're maintained by our governments in our name. So we've got to take responsibility for them. If we want them to be different, if we want the outcomes to be different, then we have to tell our representatives to change them. And we have to make sure that they do. So if you're here in New South Wales, for example, read up on the Family as Culture Review. Read up on the changes that it recommended and stand with Aboriginal organisations like ABSEC, like the Aboriginal Legal Services, in ensuring that governments take action You know, the bridge walk that James mentioned earlier, we saw 250,000 people get out and show their support for change in 2000. We need that same show of solidarity today and every day until things actually change.
2: Thanks so much. I just wanted to pick up on something that Sabine's asked about, which is obviously the particular situation in the Northern Territory highlighted by what we saw with the images from Dondale. And of course, that led to a Royal Commission. Just maybe from your perspective, Paul, what your reflections are of the particular Northern Territory situation given it had the um, rollout of the intervention policies and in some ways intensified some of the dynamics you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Now, look, I want to be the first to say that my knowledge of the Northern Territory system is not as good as my experience in other systems. So I encourage people to engage with local organisations over there who know about this issue and understand it well. But again, I think the Northern Territory intervention is an example of that old way of thinking rather than new approaches that are based on the sorts of things that Bringing Them Home was talking about. The sentence that has always stuck with me from Rudd's apology was new solutions where old approaches had failed. And the approaches of governments deciding how best to solve these issues have resoundedly failed. The old approaches of thinking that removing kids solves this issue is demonstrably untrue. Reviewing New South Wales suggested that Kids who grew up in care are 10 times more likely to have contact with the child protection system as parents. So, this idea of intervening to remove might buy us some immediate safety, but it doesn't secure the long term well being, the long term future that we want to see for kids. So, those kind of more punitive approaches to issues don't get us where we want to be. And so, I think that's the promise and the potential of bringing them home. And of the apology that we need to completely reimagine systems in a way that is focused on actually bringing down the incidence of harm rather than just trying to react to it, because often that's too late.
2: Right. James, I was just wondering what your reflections are in terms of how things like truth-telling, voice and, of course, treaty relate to an issue like this, it's a real on-the-ground issue
3: as I've said previously, information is quite important to have truth telling and understanding what's happened previously is the only way to really come together, understand what has happened and how to move forward. With all cards on the table, a treaty is significant. Why we don't have one still at this present day, unlike other colonised countries, is an uncertainty to me. But Putting that on the table, as I said, and really understanding that people have come a long way in the Australian society to understand previously what's happened. Some have and do accept what's happened, but there is the traction about accepting, understanding and moving forward with all of what has happened previously. And if that isn't all understood and there isn't any action shown to do that, like a treaty, through truth-telling, then we are going to keep moving forward on shaky ground and things may or may not come through like previously they haven't. So I think having those and, and addressing those in many ways and allowing the areas like child protection to be driven by communities and for communities who, at the end of the day, it affects us the most. And it affects those families the most. Generally, in terms of what's happening there, unfortunately, those that have the least amount of input or power in the situation. So reconciling those and redeveloping those, I think, is quite significant as a starting point.
2: Thank you. There was a question too about what the future might be around privatisation, which is obviously something I think you might have raised, James, as a concern, and I know Paul's worked in that area as well. So I just wonder if either of you wanted to um, address that issue.
3: Yeah, it's something moving from justice to child protection. When something's privatised, unfortunately, the incentives are for that system to be obsolete. If there are more private jails, we're going to want more people in those jails to continue that as a business. In terms of child protection, the privatisation of that is to have those children in those organisations to allow the funding to continue. But what are the incentives? What are to show that an organisation is doing quite well? The Aboriginal organisations that I've come into contact with are doing incredible jobs and are those people in the communities that are on the ground. They are the communities, they are connected and having smaller organisations who know what's happening, who have lived through previous issues that know how to deal with them, I think is quite significant and, you know, the UK privatised child protection and It didn't work for them, but I think for Aboriginal people, having it in uh, Aboriginal organisations is only going to empower and improve our connection, those young people's connection to culture, connection, keeping them on country and moving forward together with that.
2: And what about you, Paul? I know you've had a few cases that have brought this up for you, but uh, did you want to just add anything to that?
1: Sure. I think one of the challenges for me in this push towards outsourcing service delivery is that issue of accountability and oversight. When the statutory system intervenes in a family to remove a child, they do that in our name and they take responsibility on our behalf, given our shared interest in the safety, welfare, and well-being of our community's children. That's the philosophy of child protection systems. And so a worry that I have is when we then transfer that responsibility either to a private organisation or out to individuals through third-party orders, we're actually kind of abdicating that responsibility that we've just taken on. So to me that's a really important issue and we want to make sure that these kids, when we do intervene in, in their lives, that there is oversight and transparency and accountability about what happens for them after that. I think there's a distinction, though, between outsourcing through these kind of contracting models, service delivery. And sadly, that's been some of the only way that Aboriginal communities have been able to participate in care and protection and self-determination for Aboriginal communities in developing and designing their own systems to address this. So while that kind of trend has allowed for more communities to get involved, and when we do see community organisations getting involved, There is a tendency for them to try to stretch forward into the prevention and early intervention sides as best they can. But I don't want to fall into the trap of our communities only participating as service providers. That's a long way away from what's needed in terms of our communities designing and administering systems for the care and protection of our kids.
2: That's Associate Professor Paul Gray. You've also been listening to James Bowfield's research fellow and PhD candidate at the Jumbana Institute and the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology Sydney. They were taking part in the online forum Reconciliation Week More Than Sorry presented by the Centre for Social Justice and Inclusion and the UTS Law Faculty. To take us out tonight we'll leave you with some music from Uncle Archie Roach. In 1990, he penned the song, Took the Children Away, a depiction of his experience as a member of the Stolen Generations.
4: This story's right, this story's true I would not tell lies to you Like the promises they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep Said to us come take care him, set us up on mission name, told us to read, to write and pray, then they took the children away, took the children away the children away, snatched from for the rest took them away, welcome in the land of holy stream. Said you got to understand, we'll give to them what you can't give. Teach them how to really live, teach them how to live their sake, humiliate. Taught them that, and taught them this, and others taught them prejudice. They took the children away, the children away, breaking our mother's heart, and caring us all about. Took them away. One dark day, a home friend. Came and didn't give a damn My mother cried Go get their dad He came running And fighting babe. Mother's tears Were falling down Dad shaped up And stood his ground He said You touch my kids And you fight me Then they took A the stronger family away, they took us away, snatched from our mother's grace that this is for the best took us away. Told us what to do and say Taught us all the white man's way Then they sped us up again And gave us gifts to ease the pain Sent us off to foster homes As we grew up, we felt alone Cause we were acting white, yet feeling black one sweet day, all the children came back The children came back The children came back the children came back. back where their hearts grow strong Back where they all belong The children came back Said the children came back The children came back Back where they understand, back to their mother's land, the children came back, back to their mother's. Can yes, I can.
2: That's Uncle Archie Roach with his classic, Took the Children Away. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we look at the innovation of Indigenous knowledge systems. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out.